Hello, my name is Julianne Mahoney, and I'm a graduate student in the Department of History here at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. In this episode of Healing in the Bayou, I will be exploring similarities as well as unique aspects of traditional healers in two cultures, Mexican-American Quiranderas and Cajun and Creole Traiteurs. Both of these healing practices utilize Catholicism and prayers, as well as medicinal herbs and plants. While modern medicine tends to focus on physical health, these traditional practices are more holistic, focusing not only on physical ailments, but also psychological, emotional, and spiritual health. This podcast will be split into three parts. Part one will look at traiteurs and their practices through interviews with traiteurs Ashley Michaud and Becca Begno. Part two will focus on interviews in Youngsville and New Iberia with community members who shared stories about traiteurs. Part three will look at the practice of curanderismo through an interview with Dr. Brett Hendrickson about his book, Border Medicine, A Transcultural History of Mexican-American Curanderismo. It also includes insightful information from Erica Buenaflor, a practicing curandera. I've learned so much about both of these practices through my research and interviews for this project, and I hope you will learn something new as well. Part 1 The word traiteur means treater in French, and it describes traditional Catholic faith healers of South Louisiana. I had the opportunity to interview Becca Begno from Scott, Louisiana, and Ashley Michaud from Ville Platte, Louisiana. And they told me about the practice as well as their own experience as traiteurs. So I'll let them take it away from here. First, I asked them, what is a traitor? In my view, and I'm not an expert on it, is that it's just a faith healer. Um, and that these traditions like existed in every culture. Before we had doctors, they were the doctors. But in our area, my understanding is that we were kind of isolated out here in Louisiana and we didn't have access to doctors or priests, you know, as more as regularly. So the practice of like faith healing through traitors um, stayed around here longer than in other parts of the country. But I think, you know, you'll still find them in any native places like that have ancestral knowledge, like. Appalachia, I'm sure, in the Native American communities. And it also is not the treater healing. It's it's faith healing. So right. it's actually the person healing themselves. Then I asked about the prayers used in this practice. Basically, the gift is transmitted through a prayer, a specific prayer. So you might have the prayer for sprained ankles, the prayer for headaches, the prayer for sunstrokes, the prayer to stop bleeding, the prayer for earache, the prayer for, uh, you know, any number of, of ailments. Along with a, a Catholic prayer, usually there's a gesture. You know, you maybe you have to make the sign of the cross, or maybe you have to circle the area, or there's just something that is a physical thing between you and this person that you do. Most of the prayers are like within Catholic tradition, like a lot of sign of the cross, mm-hmm. a lot of our fathers, Hail Mary said in repetition with like your intention, like either in the prayer or said with the prayer, like anybody can do this. Mm-hmm. Some of them are in French, some of them are in English, some of them are having both. 
Most yeah. of the prayers that I have are for anxiety and like nerves, um, depression. Those are some of my favorite ones are for those. I had heard that the gift is passed down typically from a man to a woman or a woman to a man, but this is not always the case. In my understanding, it's passed um, from man to woman, woman to man, like usually in families, but then it can just be passed through in families. And it's always man to woman, woman to man, because it maintains balance between the masculine and the feminine in the gift itself. Mr. Kader lived in Cairncroft, and I think he told me he had been given eight prayers. And some of the prayers were given to him by men, and some of the prayers were given to him by women. So that blew away the whole theory of a man has to give it to a woman, a woman has to give it to a man. That's traditionally how it's done. I initially thought that treaters used both prayers as well as medicinal herbs and plants in their treatment. Although some treaters use both, most treaters only use prayers. Well, I don't know if every time you go to a treater, they won't always give you herbal stuff. Usually right. it's just prayers. Right, right. Yeah. I think um, sometimes, I think more rarely these days, they'll give you herbal stuff. Like, I do both. Herbal medicine was something we all knew. A treater said prayers. Everybody has medicinal plants in their area that can help people in that area. Mm -hmm. And it's always the natives who knew, who shared with the next people. Right. So that was common knowledge. There was, you didn't necessarily have to go to a healer for that. You know, there's a whole lot of, of respect for these plants and where they come from and, and how to use them. Personally, I never wanted to learn about that in enough detail to use it. So I, I wasn't, I just stayed with the, uh, the prayer part. But we used poultices and, and we used what was around us. When I was little, my grandpa had a farm. There were farms. We were connected. We were an agricultural society. We knew the land. We just lost that in my lifetime. Throughout my research, I noticed that traitors were not supposed to accept pay or even accept a thank you from the people that they're treating. I asked Ashley and Becca about this. There's no fee. You don't say thank you. Why you don't say thank you? That's bad manners. No, you don't say thank you because I'm invoking source. It's not me. I'm an instrument. I'm a vessel. I'm a mm -hmm. hollow bone. However people understand that you're, you're, you're actually interceding and being used in that moment. Right. right. So don't thank me. Right. My name is not God. <laughs> you don't accept money. Well, that's not true. We didn't even use money. Like, there may not be a fee. Mm -hmm. But if you came to me and I did work with your family member, then you would give me a gift later in terms of border, not a present. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to translate that to today, right? Yeah, no, thank mm -hmm. you is what I was taught. Don't yeah. accept thanks. Um, and if they thank you, say thank God, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, payment, I'm very against that. I do not believe in getting paid mm -hmm. um, for any of those services because it can be bad. Um, there can be an exchange. 
mm-hmm. you know, if people want to bring you a little sum. You know, not that day, but like later on, they'll just do a little something for me. And like, yeah, that's that's currency to me. Yeah, that's old world currency. Yeah. You don't have to think about it. You just know it's going to come back around. And if it doesn't, it don't matter to you anyway. I wanted to know about the role of Catholicism in this practice. You can't separate Catholicism from this culture or the gift of healing. It's Catholic prayers in French, and that's how it was continued. Every church is a slice of the society in which it lives. So you have to look at the role of Catholicism in my grandpa's time, in my mama's time, in my time, and today. So the Protestant communities were separate from the Catholic communities, and they grew up differently, different languages. Our religion is so deeply embedded, and mm-hmm. so is this belief, and they're so interwoven right. that it's like the same thing to these people. Like, if you suggested that it was voodoo or anything other than Catholic prayer to some of these people, they would be very upset. Yeah. But I understand that there's other stuff to it. There's other stuff underneath the French Catholic veneer, mm-hmm. you know, on top. But I would assume the church accepts these kind of things because it exists in all kind of cultures. I mean, the Catholics were missionaries everywhere. That's why we're Catholic in the first place. The church has sacraments, but this is a gift. And you don't go to church to get the gift of healing. It lives in all of us. Okay. And how you acknowledge it and how it comes out of you and how you own it or you don't own it or you use it or you don't use it. That's all real personal. Now we'll hear Becca's story of how she became a traitor. In my case, when I had the mastectomy in 89, one of the nuns at the hospital told me I should look into healing work. Uh, Sister, what's wrong with you? But I didn't. So, um, and she, she wasn't talking about I should learn about healing. And I was in the hospital. And then I had the time to think about my grandpa. So I'm like, well... If Grandpa treated me for a sunstroke, then I guess I can be a healer, because he was. I mean, we didn't even think of a traitor as a healer. You know, it's like if you know somebody that's a doctor, but they're your cousin. You don't think of him as a doctor. You know what I'm saying? So remembering that my grandfather had treated me allowed me to say yes. And what the nun had been trained in was Reiki. Okay. So I studied Reiki. I studied healing touch. We had a group that met in Lafayette called the Holistic Wellness Network at Lourdes at the same hospital that I had my surgery where I met Sister Hilda. And so this lady comes to me, but I went to school with her daughter. You know, we all related. And she goes, are you a tretard? And I'm like, oh, no, but my grandpa was. And who doesn't want to be a tretard? Thing is, when you study healing and they tell you that everybody can do this, we all are. Whether we do it or not is another thing. Right. But, so, no, I'm not trying to tell you what my grandfather was. Would you like the prayer? I don't know. Well, yeah, but you're a lady and I'm supposed to get it for men. And so right. I hadn't studied ethnography yet. I didn't know the rules didn't matter. You know, and I'm like, it's not supposed to be like that. But I just said, you know, I just got angry or questioned everything. I said, oh, I love it. So she gives me the prayer. Right. And um, and the prayer was parenté su parenté. Like, but that doesn't mean anything to me. That's not right. But it's not wrong, right? 
So, so what I understood in that moment is, and I could tell her that's not French. That's it's not not. I don't know what it is, but I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But you know, if some prayer has been given to you and it's been passed down for generations, does it matter what you say? Does it matter what language it's in? Mm -hmm. How many people did she treat and helped with incorrectness? Right. Because she was asking God to help. It was never about her or the words anyway. Yeah. So she gave me the prayers and then I, And not long after that, there was a professor of France at, of French at UL. Um, it was USL at the time. And so he sent me these prayers from a Mr. Nestor Guidry. Hmm. who lived between Abbeville and Kaplan, okay. where they have Hebert's Steakhouse. Oh, yeah. I forget the name of the town, but the area has a name. And so he gives me some prayers from Mr. Nestor Gidry that were written down. Well, you're not supposed to write it down. And so I came to the prayer that I had been given. And so when the lady gave me the prayer, she said, I'm giving you the prayer for sprained ankles, but you can use it for anything. Okay. Like, well, how could you do that? <laughs> I, I didn't question, you know. Yeah. So in in some ways, the traiteurs were always specialists. But then she's telling me I can do this general, mm -hmm. which is not what I thought. But and up to that point, the only person I knew that had more than one prayer or had it was Mr. Kidder. He had eight. Mm -hmm. So. You know, every time you learn something, it expands, and it affects everything you thought you knew. And when I found the prayer for sprained ankles, listed in the prayers of Mr. Nestor Guidry, it, it said, Je suis parent, je suis parent, je suis parent, je suis parentation. And that means, I am related. So the prayer that she gave me almost sounded like parenté, su parenté, but I knew that wasn't Je suis parent, je suis parent, je suis parent. Hey, I mean, wow. So what do Native Americans talk about? All our relations. So this was a come-together moment from my own culture and incorrect words, which were never incorrect because it's not about the words, and the reality of what had been written by Mr. Nestor Guidry, and then all of a sudden I realized that healers do this because it's about a relationship. It's relational. And that was just like, wow. Because I had studied enough Native American spirituality and to know this was... But, but if you just talk to the Native Americans and you don't understand that Catholics do the same thing and the word Catholic and universal interchangeable, if we start acting like that, then we could have world peace. Now we'll hear from Ashley about how she became a traitor. For me, it was, um, I think I always just knew it would come to me in a way, but I, I denied it for a long, long time. Just too much. I told myself, no, 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 for many years. No, you, you're not like worthy to, to do that. You're not one of those. People are going to judge you. People are going to say, oh, you can't be X, Y, and Z. You can only be Q. <laughs> so I prayed for God to heal me so I could help heal others. Mm -hmm. And that was my prayer for like a decade almost. And then, and then it really, it came to me with the French. When I learned my French, 
it was just undeniable that like I knew that I had some things coming toward me to me because I was able to understand them and so I just really wanted to uh, understand the prayers but I went to um well my parents actually learned there's a man they missed a verbus swallow who lives in Point Blue and he died last year two years ago but um he treated in French and um he taught my mama's best friend, Miss Lisa, his prayers in English. Hmm. And she taught my stepdad, because my stepdad is a traitor. His grandmother was. But she died before she could pass it to him. And he always talked about it and wanted it. And he has, like, super healing hands. And he's had some miraculous healing that's hmm. happened to him in his life. And um, so he always, and that's a very common story, like, People will say, oh, yeah, it was in my family. It was almost in everybody's family. But so-and-so died before they could pass it on. And it's kind of one of those things, like the language, it's kind of like, oh, they they regret that. So my stepdad was like that. So Miss Lisa learned the prayer from Mr. Verbus and taught my stepdad. Okay. In English. In English. Okay. And then he taught my mama. Oh, wow. And so my mama and him. And then I came to town that day. It was 2013 or 14. And they were like so excited. They wanted to teach me because mm. they knew, I think. And they were like, they were so happy that he got it too because he'd been like waiting a long time for it. And so they taught me it in English. And I was like, well, he, but he learned it. He knows it in French, Mr. Verbus. And they were like, yeah. So I was like, I'm going to go see him. Mm -hmm. So maybe like a few months or a year later, I went and saw him myself and learned the prayer in French. And I think that's how it happened to me. I mean, I think everybody's interested in it because I think everybody feels their, uh, their ability to heal. Everybody has touched that. Their, your mama heals you. You feel a feel like you, everybody knows that that exists, that we can self heal placebo effect. I mean, and I think everybody recognizes that in themselves a little bit. Um, so I think I always had that, but I think, um, the best traitors are people that have gone through pain and stuff and like stress and like hard times in their life. And so they're, they're the ones that have made good of that. And so I may, I was like that. Like I went through a lot of just like family stuff, hard stuff in life. Um, not knowing who I was and not understanding that all that bad stuff that I went through was training me to help other people to just be myself. Mm -hmm it would behoove us as a culture to recognize kids like that in our culture that like, that's why culture is so important, you know, because it, it gives you a framework where like I can actually channel like my hurt into helping other people. And that's super fulfilling. But a lot of like Miss Becca will say, Treters, they ain't that bad, but they ain't that good either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just, that really, that really hit home for me because it's true. Like you think, oh, I have to be a certain type of person to be a traiteur. And there's really all kinds. Yeah. And sometimes the ones that are the roughest, I've been through the roughest, like they're the best. Sometimes it's the sweet little Cajun ladies that go to mass every day and they're clean, clean. And you know, it just depends on what you need. On, right. on the energy you need, but there's all kinds. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think through the language it came to me through just like being who I was and, um, accepting it honestly. Cause I do think that everybody is, mm -hmm. it's just who accepts stepping into that space with other people. Cause that takes a lot of energy.
I'm just glad it exists. Like we still have it. There's still an art to it. There's still mystery to it. I asked them about the ways that things have changed for treaters. In the day, like everybody knew everybody, like your you taunt, you know, treats for warts, and that one, your you great aunt treats for sunstroke, and uh, whoever treats the horses down their street, and like that's your, they were your family. You know, and your family's family, you trusted these people. And you knew it had nothing to do with witchcraft and all this stuff, right? Right. But nowadays, that we lack that community and that pe- and people um, misinterpret it. Mis- right. So that's why you don't have people, like, saying, oh, I am. Because I don't want some dumbass thinking that I do God knows what. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was taught by, like, some of the most pious, Catholic, clean people ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? So I think that there's a secrecy there. Okay. That people, you know, they don't want, because we're scared that people misunderstand. I think our society has not grown people like that, you know, because we yeah. just, we pop a pill, we go to the doctor, right. we get a shot. There were more treaters uh, because of like distance, number one, and also people treated for like different things right? in okay. the community. So that like one person in the community usually didn't treat for everything. Um, but what I've learned as with, with anything, people are saying, yes, it's dying, it's dying. But the second you start scratching the surface, you're going to come up with so many people, young and old. Part two. Now that we've heard from two traitors, I'd like to feature interviews with community members from Youngsville and New Liberia. These interviews included conversations on both traitors as well as medicinal plants and ways that their towns have changed over time. First, we'll hear a story from Kathleen Longlinay-Cart of Youngsville about the time she went visit a traitor with her brother. I accompanied my brother. He was covered with warts. And he had been to the doctor, and the doctors gave him all kind of medicines, and nothing worked. So my dad knew a traitor that lived not far from us here in Youngsville. So he told my brother, well, we'll try the traitor. He reluctantly went, and I wanted to see. Of course, Miss Curiosity over here wanted (laughs) to see what what she was going to do. And when we got in her little house, uh, the first thing she did was pull out this huge curved knife that looked like a machete. And I thought my brother was going to run out of the house. My dad had to hold him. He thought the same thing. I said, what is she going to do, cut these warts off? She said, no, baby, I'm just going to make the sign of the cross on every wart. And within a month, they'll go away. Well, my brother was being held down by my father at the time, and she proceeded to make a cross on every wart without cutting, no drawing blood or anything. And if I remember correctly, after she did all of that, he had to take either corn or salt and throw it over his right shoulder. I mean, after about a month, all his warts disappeared one at a time. And it was amazing to see how that worked. I, I, I think it's your body actually 
gets involved in the healing process. It's got to be that. And, and it was a religious thing, too. She prayed right. over the warts as prayers. she did. Right. And I, I know for a fact it works. Treter means treater, you know. I know it has to be a gift because not just anybody can do it. I, I do believe it's a lot to do with what you think. It's psychosomatic. But there, there has to be something more to it than just that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a, a religious person, but I'm not that deeply religious. But I do believe that there is a higher power that helps us to heal. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like you're going to heal, I think it helps you to heal. Now we'll hear from Eddie Krejcian of New Iberia, discussing his visit to a traitor in St. Martinville in the 80s. Just a heads up, this audio clip is pretty rough sounding, so beforehand, I'll summarize the story. When Mr. Eddie was a kid, he went to traitors in his community of Morbihan in New Iberia. But he told me the last time he was treated was in the 80s. He was having problems with his knees, and his friend told him about a woman in St. Martinville who treated, so he went to see her. She prayed for him and made the sign of the cross on his knee, and after that, he was healed. Do you know anyone who still goes to traitors today, or is that? I went to one back in the eighties. I was having problems with my knees. I was working offshore. I had problems with my knees. One morning, and the young guy went with me from San Marcos to me. Said, "Man, I go ahead and fix the knees up for you right now." I said, "Well, let's go." And we went to. We got on the boat and we went to St. Martinville and it was an old lady. That's the only one I ever went to after I was drunk. Yeah. But when I was young coming up, we went to the prayer. When you spraying your toes. Yeah, yeah. What did uh what did the lady in St. Martin pray? She prayed, yeah. Yes. Put the little sign yeah. across on your knees. Huh. And that's it. And you couldn't give me that. Okay. You wouldn't take that? Yeah. No, and uh, I don't have problems with my knees at all. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, back in the day, that's the way it was. Uh Conducting these interviews was a really great experience. After researching traitors and interviewing a couple, it was really beneficial to talk to members of different communities. I'm from New Iberia, so it meant a lot to me to be able to interview someone like Mr. Eddie in my own hometown. Part 3 Now we will discuss Carandarismo a Mexican-American folk healing practice with deep historical heritage that existed before modern healthcare. It draws both from indigenous health practices and Catholicism. The practice incorporates Catholic prayers and medicinal plants and herbs. I became interested in learning more about Caranderismo after reading some articles about traitors that briefly mention this practice in comparison. And while they are not exactly the same, they share some major aspects, especially in terms of Catholicism. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Brett Hendrickson, professor of religion at Lafayette College. 
We discussed Caranderismo and talked about the similarities between traitors and Caranderas. We also discussed his book, Border Medicine, a transcultural history of Mexican-American Caranderismo. First, we'll start off hearing about Dr. Hendrickson's research that led to his book. The more I realized that uh, what most people were looking for when it came to devotions to a saint uh, or to Mary or something like that, uh, was some sort of healing, either for their own bodies, for their culture, for their family members. And I just, that led me to get interested in curanderismo. And it kind of went from there where, uh, you know, I reviewed the literature and figured out where um, some of my research might be able to fit and kind of went from there. What what I was interested in specifically, and, and I think what is kind of the main point of the book, is what role has Mexican-American folk healing played in Southwestern history, uh, borderlands history, and also what role has it played in cross, or as, as the title says, transcultural settings? Um, have Mexican-Americans' religious traditions not only been for them, but how have they influenced people around them, particularly colonial um, populations of, of white settlers? Uh, and then nowadays, you know, um, just the multifaceted, multi-ethnic populations in the U.S. And so the book looks at that specifically. How has curanderismo influenced people not only in the Mexican-American community, but also outside of it? In the tradition, a curandera or a curandero, I'll just say curandera, because I think one of the things we can talk about later, too, is so a lot of women are involved in this. You know, th their role is in some ways to uh, diagnose problems. So people come to them with, you know, sometimes knowing very well what's wrong with them, but other times just kind of having basic malaise. And uh, they'll diagnose people um, often through what they consider to be uh, a gift that they have. They call it a don, uh, D-O-N, don, where they can sometimes even sense the energy of an illness in someone's body or almost see it. Like they have almost like a, a special kind of site where they can see right where the area is in the body that's causing the problem. Or otherwise, you know, if, if that's not the case, they'll just spend time talking to someone, you know, talking through getting like a case history, kind of like, a, you know, any medical professional would. The other role they have then is kind of bringing to bear the knowledge that they've amassed uh, over the course of their practice and over the course of their training where they will understand, OK, so if you have X malady, uh, going on that, you know, this particular type of treatment is going to work best. This particular kind of herbal remedy is going to work best and then, you know, make it happen. Either, you know, make a prescription to someone, you know, drink this type of tea or infusion for so many days, pray to this particular saint. And then oftentimes they'll do a treatment on the body too, right then and there that will if it's something that's inside infecting the body, it will kind of ritually remove that from the body. One treatment that's very common is called a limpia, L-I-M-P-I-A, limpia, uh, which is a cleansing. And for that, um, the the curandera will use uh, oftentimes like a, a bundle of herbs or sometimes a raw egg in the shell to sweep all the way from the crown of the head to the feet, slowly kind of sweeping that over the body cleansing, either cleanse, sweeping away negative energy and sickness from the body, or in the case of the egg, it's absorb those negative forces out of the body. 
Uh, and while the curandera does that, he or she is maybe softly talking to the person, giving them encouragement, uh, or even more likely saying some sort of set prayer, um, maybe the, the Our Father or the Apostles' Creed or a prayer that's specifically uh, designed for the kind of illness or a prayer to the saint who's going to be, you know, working like, let's say you have liver illness, you know, praying to some saint that will help with your liver. Occasionally in my research, I've found that curanderas, besides just treating um, a sick person, sometimes will also get involved in treating uh, almost like a, a family counselor where people will go and kind of uh, disputes will be settled or maybe someone in the family is sick that can't go to the curandera either because they're too sick to get there or they don't want to go. Family members will get together and sort of have a treatment uh, by distance for that person and, you know, has the double uh, benefit of getting people together too and, you know, kind of having that time of thinking about the, their loved one together and, you know, finding solutions and things like that. Um, and then finally, some curanderas are also interested in training others. And so, you know, once they get to the second half of their career or whatever, that they would have apprentices, they would, you know, show the ropes to pass on the tradition that way. As we've heard in part one, Ashley and Becca noted that traitors have a gift, and this gift is passed down. Dr. Hendrickson will discuss the same kind of phenomenon in curanderismo. I'd say it's a gift from God. You know, particularly if the curandera, and, and most of them do, you know, really think of themselves as Catholic, uh, it would be sort of this special skill that's been entrusted to them by God to be used for helping others. Some curanderas maybe are, you know, have tried to reconnect with indigenous pasts, and they might, you know, maybe not have the Christian God in mind, but still considering this as like a special gift that they have for the benefit of the people they're with. And, and I think the way that's identified is the way that a lot of us get our gifts identified, you know, you know, we're all, you know, if you're good at something, if you're good at drawing or cooking or singing or whatever, uh, you kind of know that about yourself, but then also other people tell you and they're like, okay, you know, there's something I really value about you. And I think young people or, you know, people when this happens in their lives, they, they kind of realize, you know, I, I enjoy caring for people. I enjoy, you know, sometimes I, I'm sensitive to what people are suffering and, you know, I can bring that to bear on our interactions. And so that loan gets discovered by someone who's interested in healing, but also is kind of communicated to them by the people around them in the community. The other way it can happen is people in a family who are just especially interested in like the family's herbal remedies or things like that. You know, start to interest will grow from there. While we discuss the ways gender can affect the passing down of the gift. Dr. Hendrickson notes that this isn't the case in Curanderismo. In Curanderismo, at least, it's not like that where it would be, there would be, you know, a woman would pass it to a man and then to a woman. It might be to a family member or like to a niece or a nephew or something like that, or, um, you know, someone that you know, I can understand that. But among the Pennsylvania Dutch, these like, they're descended from Germans for the most part, mostly Protestant, but with like sort of there's some German Catholics in the mix too. And they have this folk healing tradition called powwowing, similar to all these things where they have herbal remedies. But I found out, you know, this group, they do, they have passed on typically from a man to a woman and then to a woman to a man. So yeah, your your apprentice will always be of the, the opposite sex from you. The guy who was given the lecture, he speculated that one of the benefits of of doing that was that it, it it actually creates a lot of gender parity 
I guess, within the healing tradition, because about half the healers are men and half are women. Um, where in Curanderismo, like most of the healers are women. For women, it's often something that, you know, really was something they learned in the home from their mothers and grandmothers. They're not likely to say they learned it from their grandfather. Um, and men will often say the same. Now, Dr. Hendrickson will discuss the ways that modern medicine has marginalized curanderismo and other traditional medical practices. Biomedicine is really hegemonic, like it's, it's just everywhere. There's no, there's very little room for doubt around it in our society. And as you may have found, you know, studying traiteurs, because these are people who are not necessarily at the center of society, it's often hard to construct, reconstruct the past because the sort of things that have been left you know, they're not the same sort of archives that you might find about people in power who are having all their words written down and put in a box somewhere. You know, it can be difficult to figure out what exactly did happen in the past. But it's worth it's worth trying to figure it out anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so. Most people who practice these things still go to the medical doctor. That these are also parts of their lives, though, that are important to them enough to continue doing. And just trying to figure out why that is, is, you know, what's so compelling, I think. Where it was like the, the one and only option or, you know, maybe the best option for people because they were excluded from or couldn't afford by any means other sorts of treatments. Uh, now I think it, it has taken more of a complementary in Mexican-American families and communities, you know, because there is no sense that like, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor because I'm going to go talk to my aunt instead, who's going to give me an herbal remedy. I'm definitely going to go to the doctor, but I'm also going to talk to my aunt. And that's going to be part of my entire strategy for getting better. I asked Dr. Hendrickson about the role of Catholicism and Carandadismo. You know, and Catholics, unlike Protestants, have always been much better at uh, crafting or shaping the Catholic message in a way that were just way more, they were better at accommodating local traditions. I think that's why a lot of these things have been able to grow and and flourish, these kind of combinatory traditions, like these healing traditions. I was curious if curanderas were paid for their treatments. You know, there's a lot of lore, and I would call it lore, that true curanderos in the day, like 100 years ago, didn't accept payment. That it was uh, strictly something they did out of a sense of obligation or because, you know, it was part of the, the just the function of the community that this healer was there. Um, with that said, though, I have not been able to find any evidence whatsoever that people did this purely out of the goodness of their hearts. There is often like a barter economy that, okay, even if someone said like, I don't take payment, that meant many might be monetary payment, but they certainly would accept some, you know, trading goods or, or services. I asked Dr. Hendrickson about the ways that Carandismo has changed. I wouldn't say decline. I'd say there have just been changes. You know, I think the big thing that's happened it's going to be more likely that people seek out treatment at the doctor's office or, you know, at the pharmacy or, or whatever. However, something that, that continues to happen and is happening, I think, more and more is that if you if you go to any American community that has a large Latino population, you're almost for sure going to find a shop uh, that sells like religious goods and herbs. 
And um, out here, it's often called a botanica. These kind of things, not only are they selling these goods to people who are using them in their homes to practice, whether they call it curanderismo or not, but continuing traditions of healthcare and dealing with like the, the overall well-being of their homes and their bodies uh, with these goods, uh, what will often happen too is that the person who runs the store will be some will be a curandero or a curandero and uh, will have like a consult room in the back. And if you go in there, you know, you may not know to ask for it, but if you do, you do. And, you know, they'll often um, have services right there where they'll treat you. Like everything, a lot of this is on the internet as well. Uh, it's just something that persists um, very strongly. You know, I think that, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's in danger of, of going away. Now we will hear from Erica Buenaflor, a curandera practicing in California. She has been practicing curanderismo for over 20 years, and she offers her services professionally. And she has a YouTube channel where she regularly discusses her practice as a curandera. Let's hear her story. My name is Erica Bonaflor. I am a practicing curandera with 20 years of experience and training in curanderismo. In Spanish, the root word of curanderismo is curar, which means to heal. A curandera is a female healer. A curandero is a male healer. It draws from Spanish spiritual theories. It draws from African and Caribbean mental and health practices. It draws from Greek humoral medicine theories revived from the Spanish Renaissance. It draws from Arabic mental and health practices. It draws from some European witchcraft practices as well. But most importantly, the foundations of curanderismo are from the indigenous Americas. Well before the Spaniards arrived to the Americas, many of the indigenous people were practicing many of the traditions of curanderismo. So my training, it comes from a blend of field and also academic research. An academic, I got a master's in religious studies with a focus on ancient Mesoamerican shamanism as well as contemporary curanderismo. And uh, also culturally, my background, uh, I come from a long line of grandmother curanderas. My great-great-grandmother was a very well-known curandera in Chihuahua, Mexico. And um, my great-grandmother, who had the honor and pleasure to know for, for a long time of my life, up until I was about eight, around her and I was exposed to that culture. Uh, when I came to Los Angeles, I'm first generation, I kind of was uh, disassociated from that culture because most of my family was from Mexico. And fast forwarding, I, um, I was very fortunate when I got to UCLA, um, the, the sentiment at that time very much involved in social justice and my spirit, my soul was awakened at that time. So I was, I was pretty much living two lives where I was a, an attorney and I was a curandera mentee. After a near-death hiking experience resulting in numerous injuries, Erica spent a year unable to walk in a wheelchair. So, 
they told me, yeah, you know, it's more than likely that you're not going to be able to walk, and if you walk, it's going to be with some kind of assistance, and you know, you're coccyx shattered. Nothing we can do about that. You're going to be in pain the rest of your life. That time when I had first heard of all the things that were wrong, I decided, okay, I'm either going to allow some other people to decide for me what is going to be happening to my body. Where I'm going to decide what is going to happen to my body, and I chose the latter. I chose to step into my power and accept my don.、Um, the don—it's a Spanish word for—it's a gift of healing from God. It's a very common word that's used in curanderismo traditions, which is what I embrace. I finally fully embrace my don for the first time in my life, and. Long story short, after not walking for almost a year, I walked with a completely normal gait in less than two weeks, and remain to this day 100% pain-free. I really wanted to understand the ancient traditions of of my peoples, of the indigenous peoples. So I decided、uh, to go back to school and bury my head in the books and learn about these traditions and study these traditions in the, in the ethnohistorical records. So that's what I did. I had an amazing time just reading and loving and studying about these traditions. But I also realized that academia wasn't for me. I didn't want to study about curanderas and curanderas. I am the curandera. <laughs> so. That's how I know a lot about these traditions and、uh, the ancient traditions, and that's what a lot of my books are going to be covering. That's what my first book, Cleansing Rites of Curanderismo, and my、uh, second book,、uh, Curanderismo Soul. They're grounded and they're rooted in the ancient traditions, and also how we can incorporate them into our lives and help us in this day-to-day -day life to live and realize our bliss. Conclusion. Growing up in New Iberia, I didn't know anything about traitors, but that doesn't mean I wasn't familiar with faith healing. My family was religious and prayed for people when they were sick. As we've seen throughout this podcast, faith healing isn't designated to just one culture. Faith healing through prayer is prominent in many other religions and cultures. I'm grateful to have learned both about the healing traditions of my own culture and have used that knowledge to explore and relate to another culture. Learning about traitors and curanderas has reminded me of the importance of all aspects of health. Like modern medicine, I tend to only focus on physical problems and symptoms. The experience of researching and interviewing and putting this podcast together has been healing for me because it's forced me to consider. My psychological, emotional, and spiritual health of equal importance to my physical health. To end with a quote from Plato: This is the great error of our day in the treatment of the human body that physicians separate the soul and body. I believe a major reason curanderas and traitors are still practicing in the midst of modern medicine is because they have resisted this kind of separation of soul and body. 
They continue to heal people in holistic and meaningful ways. And I can't imagine that going away anytime soon in either culture. I'd like to credit some articles and books, as well as archives, that I utilized during my research process. Border Medicine by Dr. Brett Hendrickson. Cajun and Creole Treaters, a Magical Religious Folk Healing in French Louisiana by Rocky Sexton. It's Only Folklore, Folklore and the Historian by Carl Lindahl. A Cajun Traitor, Faith Healing on the Bayou by Karen Yochum. Healing Logics, Culture and Medicine in Modern Health Belief Systems. Edited by Erica Brady. Erica Buenaflor's website, realizeyourbliss.com, as well as her YouTube channel. There were several articles from the Pat Rickles Collection at the Center for Louisiana Studies, an audio interview with Dr. Alicio Torres, and different materials from the Border Studies Archive at the University of Texas and Rio Grande Valley. couldn't have done this without the incredible and valuable information from everyone that I interviewed. I'd like to thank Ashley Michaud, Becca Begno, Kathleen Longlinet-Cart, Eddie Kretchen, Dr. Brett Hendrickson, and Erica Buenaflor. I'd also like to thank the Center for Louisiana Studies, Vermilionville, the Youngsville Historical Society, the Iberia African American Historical Society, University Special Collections, the Gilbo Center for Public History, and the UL Department of History. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for more episodes of Healing in the Bayou and check out our website for more information. Merci.